Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologer Demetra George about a recent archaeological discovery of the earliest Greco-Roman yeah. Greco woman that we know of who was a practicing astrologer whose name was Heliodora. Uh, so hey, Demetra, welcome hey, back to the show. Chris. I know this is a very exciting episode to be part of, is bringing the name of a woman astrologer from the ancient time period into the modern era. Yeah, so this is like a kind of a big discovery mm -hmm. that that we didn't know about that was actually recently unearthed um, through archaeology, where um, some researchers, three researchers, published a paper in 2021 that I just discovered mm -hmm. recently last month, um, where up till this point, up until recently, even though we knew that there were women that practiced astrology in the ancient world, there weren't very many specific names that we knew of until many centuries later. Um, but now all of a sudden, uh, they've discovered the tombstone of a woman who lived in Egypt mm -hmm. in the second or third century CE. And it says that she was actually a practicing astrologer. I, I know that is so important. Um, for all of the contemporary women doing astrology now, because over the years of teaching Hellenistic astrology, and we would go on about Valens and Ptolemy and Nechepso and Pesiris and all of the others. And there would always be questions in the audience, like, well, where are the women? Weren't there any women astrologers? Don't you have any of their names? And we'd have to say, sadly, no, we don't have the names. We don't. We are not aware of them. And there was like this crestfallen disappointment that would happen over the audience. So um, this is monumental, truly, to begin to have this beginning point. And as we'll see, like we've sort of um, found a few other women also that we'll tell you about that have astrological-like connections. Yeah, and and it's also so different compared to modern times, where it's like the the majority of the practitioners and the majority of the people that that use astrology mm -hmm. are women. So it's so weird then going into ancient astrology, where in terms of the surviving sources up until now, it's been so much reversed or so much the opposite in some ways. Right, I think um, at least part of that is that education was not readily available to ordinary women. If one came from a wealthy family and had enlightened father, um, those daughters might be educated. But for ordinary women, it was felt their job was to bear children and take care of families. And so it was useless. So that women didn't have access to the kinds of mathematics or uh, reading or thinking or learning that would have allowed them to become astrologers. And secondly, for most women, it was frowned upon to have a profession outside of one's marriage, that a respectable, a respectable woman did not have a job or go to work. And if women did, it was because of poverty and necessity. So I think those two factors of um, education and what it was permissible for respectable women to do close the doors for many women who might have otherwise gone into the profession right 
Um, and then, but at the same time, we do know that women um, were clients of astrologers or saw astrologers. And recently there've been some horoscopes that were discovered in Demotic Egyptian from the first century BCE, and they represent some of the earliest horoscopes mm -hmm. or birth charts that have survived. Right. And one of the things that I noted is that I think at least two or three of the clients were were women, which means that some of the earliest horoscopes that survive were actually birth charts cast for, for women, presumably clients. Yeah. And, um, and it was during Roman times that women had many more freedoms um, and a more open lifestyle than they had in definitely classical period Greece. Um, so, and if it was in the first centuries BC, I guess the Romans would have just taken over Egypt at that time. So be curious if they were, if we knew if there were Roman citizens in Egypt or Egyptian women or what their social status was that allowed them and gave them the opportunity to seek astrological advice. Right. Yeah. And then we we also know from some of the handbooks of the astrologers that survive, like Vedius Valens or especially recently Firmicus Maternus, mm -hmm. that they'll have references where usually when they're instructing somebody how to interpret a birth chart, oftentimes the default is for a man, but then they'll mm -hmm. say, and then the same principle yeah. applies to women, yeah. or they'll say sometimes, or you have to look at the chart from this perspective if for a woman and it's different for a man or a woman mm -hmm. um, in certain techniques. So there was an awareness and sometimes instructions about how to delineate a chart for a woman because that was presumably like a pretty common occurrence. Yeah. Yes, that's absolutely right. So that you can find that material. And if you're like, looking specifically for the variations for women's chart, then often you have to read carefully through the text to find those places where it will um, state that. Right. Like one of the common areas is they'll say yeah. that Venus signifies marriage in a man's chart, but mm -hmm. in a woman's chart, they'll say that Mars signifies right. marriage. Right. Yeah. So um, elsewhere, it's like when I was researching this for my book, because I had a chapter on all the major Hellenistic astrologers, and I created a brief section talking about um, some of the few references to, to women astrologers that were known at that point, back when I published that in 2017. And one of the ones that I found um, was from the first century in Juvenal's satires, where he's sort of satirizing um, Roman society mm -hmm. and the idea of, of women that consult with astrologers so much that they become proficient in it and they start um, becoming astrologers themselves and seeing mm -hmm. clients. So he says, <clears throat> at one point he says, uh, mm -hmm. be sure to keep out of the way of that type too. You will see her carrying around in her hands like a ball of scented amber, a well-thumbed ephemeris. She no longer consults, but rather she herself is consulted. When her husband is leaving for camp or home, she will not go too if Thrasyllus and his calculations detain her. When she decides to travel a mile, a suitable hour is produced from her book. <laughs> so there it's like, yeah. That's wonderful. That's, that's really brilliant. Yeah. You can see the image and 
And of course, the first line, like, be careful to stay out of the way of this woman, you know, this kind of woman. Yeah, that stay away, stay away from her. There was this derision toward women who, you know, who actually did that. But it's beautiful, a woman walking around holding an ephemeris like a scented ball of amber. Is Yeah. Uh, I would love to you to um, have your um, AI um, thing create a painting of a Roman woman carrying ephemeris like a scented ball of amber. Okay, yeah, I'll see if I can come okay, up with something. Okay, see if you can come up with it. It would just be brilliant to send that image around. Right. Um, and so, you know, it also has a reference there to Thrasylus, like one of the most yeah. famous astrologers of the Greco-Roman period mm -hmm. who worked for the emperor Tiberius. Yeah. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about their family line because they had a family mm -hmm. line of astrologers uh, and different men and women over the course of like two, two at least centuries. Um, so we have the reference to Thrasylus there, and then also to even electional astrology, to mm -hmm. like choosing an auspicious hour to depart for something or to do something, yeah. and the idea that that's one of the ways that women would be using astrology by the first mm -hmm. century. All right, so that's like some of the context, and then aside from that, up until recently, the other earliest names that we knew of were people like Hypatia in the fourth century or fifth century, which was like a, a maybe that she would have had some training in astrology since she did have background in astronomy. And then I did a previous episode also on uh, Queen Baran, who lived mm -hmm. in the ninth century in Baghdad. Yes. Um, and I did that episode with Ali Alumi, and we talked about her having and these legends surrounding her and her skill with astrology and using it in order to like um, avoid an assassination pl plot on the caliph at the time. Um, but that's all, all the way in the ninth century. So that just gives you some idea of, you know, the gaps in our knowledge up until recently, mm -hmm. which is part of the reason or part of the context of why this discovery is so important and is so striking yeah. since this is a specific named person from the second or third century CE. All right. Okay. So let's let me pull out the article. Um so the title of the article is The Funerary Stella of Heliodora Astrologer. Let me put it up on the screen by Roger S. Bagnall, Kathy Calloway, and Alexander Jones. And if people just Google the title, you'll come up with links where you can read this um, article yourself. And what you'll see there is what they've discovered is um, the essentially the tombstone of a woman from the second that they think is what lived in the second or third century um, and this is what it looks like from Greco-Roman Egypt. And the tombstone has a picture of her. Uh, she's like reclining on a couch with two uh, pillows underneath her arm. She's holding a cup and there's a little uh, jackal, which is probably connected with the god Anubis off to her left, which was like the god of the underworld or the god that um, sort of helped people that were heading heading to the mm -hmm. underworld. 
And then below that, there's an inscription, um, which gives her name and talks a little bit and gives some epithets for her and for her life. So here it is, and it's written in Greek. And the text, the translation, it says, Heliodora, astrologer, chaste, without reproach, virgin, brother-loving, about 52 years old, farewell. So- um, What um, happened to be of courage? I mean, I changed it because- okay. um, it, the the literal translation is be of good courage, but it also in a lot of the inscriptions and one of the other entries in the Liddell and Scott lexicon was said when it's used in that context, it means the equivalent to us okay. of essentially like, like farewell. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's the only thing we have that records her, but what's notable about this is Usually on these tombstones, they don't frequently list um, the person's profession. They don't usually have a say a lot about the person. But what's unique here is that um, it both says her profession, that she was a woman who practiced astrology, and then it gives a number of other little um, points about her life and what she was like. So this then becomes the earliest, at least in terms of the Greco-Roman or, or Egyptian astrological mm -hmm. tradition, like the earliest reference to a woman practicing astrology that we know of, at least by name. Hey, so there are a lot of other pieces to the story that we can tease out of both what you said and what some of the things that the article went on to say yeah i mean and, one, of, yeah. one of them is the mathematica because it says it calls her a mathematica and i thought that might be our first point to talk about right the, the uh, mathematica is the feminine um version of mathematicos which is the masculine it meant uh someone who does calculations but that was the term that was used for astrologers because astrologers were always doing numbers um, that were necessary in order to erect the chart. And so there we have that um, first sort of almost beautiful piece of insight into what was the primary and most fundamental work of being an astrologer was knowing the mathematicos, knowing the mathematics that allowed one to erect the chart. Right. So that's really important. So it calls her a mathematica, and that was in that time period, especially in the first and second and third centuries, just mm -hmm. like mathematics was the common term that was used to refer to both astrologers as well as the practice of astrology, just because mm -hmm. of how much math and how much calculations yeah. were used. Um, which, you know, prior to modern times, prior to the invention of computers, all astrologers had to know how to calculate a chart by hand. And there was a lot of, of different math and calculations involved in doing that. Right. And that was so important because if you wanted to learn astrology, if you wanted to be an astrologer, the first thing you had to do is learn how to do the math to 
direct the chart. If you couldn't learn or figure out how to do the math, that was the end of your career in astrology. There wasn't any place else that you could go. This was pre-computers and before you could get the chart online or before there was astrological software, before there were computers. Um, and to a certain point before you could even send away to someone else to get it. Um, that was something that wasn't possible until the early 1980s. Um, and so that's the critical, like, first principle of astrology is uh, the mathematicos. Yeah. So that's really important. And, you know, even recently, um, you know, Ben, in the episode just before this, on Firmicus Maternus, um, Firmicus titled his book Mathesis and commonly refers to astrology as mathematics, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't just a, an occasional thing, but sometimes it became just the common or the standard term in that time period, right. almost to the extent that that was like the fancier term that astrologers themselves mm -hmm. pref preferred to use sometimes for astrology. Well, even Sextus Empiricus, who was a little bit later, what, it was the second, third century CE, um, when he was writing his work as a skeptic, criticizing all of the forms of knowledge of being unable to know anything with certainty, that one of the fields of knowledge that he included was astrology. And when you get... Um, various translations of it, or you're looking to find citations, sometimes you'll see that book um, titled Against the Astrologers, but other times in a more literal way, um, it's against the Mathematicos. And so the Mathematicos was the more academic title for the astrologer that continued to be used as um, by philosophers as the time period went on. Right. Um, I'm just saving, I have a, a quote about that actually from Sextus's own work. Let me share it. Mm -hmm. Here it is. So this is from the introduction to his text against the, his polemical text against the astrologers. So he opens by like defining what he's going to focus on, and he says, it is astrology or mathematics that is the investigation lying before us, that the investigation lying before us is about, not the complete kind that consists of arithmetic and geometry, nor the predictive ability possessed by the followers of Eudoxus, Hipparchus, and the like, which some also call astronomy but against nativity telling, which the Chaldeans dress up with more solemn names when they call themselves mathematicians and astrologers, elaborately insulting ordinary life, erecting a great deal of superstition against us, and not letting us use proper reasoning to achieve anything. So, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to ask, in the very first uh, two words, it's astronomy or mathematics. Do you know if they use the word astronomia, where they had astronomy, or did the translator put that just put that in? That might be something uh, you can check when you yeah. get the uh, 
don't original have the text. I don't have the Greek text in front of me right now, but I yeah. can look it up. Oh yeah, I actually have the Greek text right here. So that's funny. In the first, the first one, it says astrologios, a mathematicus. Okay. And then later, when it mentions the Chaldeans and what they call themselves, it says mathematicus chi astrologos. Oh yeah, and earlier when he's talking about Eudoxus and Hipparchus, mm -hmm. he does use the Greek term astronomion, so okay. astronomers. Okay. So already there's starting to be like a differentiation there mm -hmm. that he's drawing between astrologer and astronomer. Right. Because in many texts, um, the word for astronomia or astronomias is also interchangeable with the word for astrologer. Yeah. It seemed like, because in the Mesopotamian tradition, the astronomers and the astrologers were one and the same, and there wasn't like a differentiation, mm -hmm. but then in the Greco-Roman tradition, it seems like they started to diverge, and um, but the, but there was still a lack of standardization about what word yeah. to use for one or the other. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so Sextus Empiricus, and then even that actually brings up an important point that even the in the, like the Greek god of astrology or goddess of astrology um, was a was a woman, right? Well, that was Urania who was one of the nine muses and the muses were sort of the um, spirits of divine inspiration that ruled over the different music and poetry and drama and urania was the eldest of the muses and she both was of astronomy slash astrology as well as um, music and her son was Linus who was um, credited with the invention of melody and we have the fusion in Urania of music and astronomy the so-called like harmony of the spheres I mean the notion that the planets and their orbits are creating a huge symphony, symphony in the heavens but going back to Urania she is depicted um, in ancient statues I'm often holding a globe of the world in one hand and a measuring compass in the other hand by which she is measuring off um, the world coming from the heavenly realm. And we later on, we may talk about this notion of um, measuring cords for the heavens being brought down to earth. Oh, yeah. Um... We might as well mention that now, actually, because that would be a good, um, just as a digression, even though the episode's not about that. But um, recently in a lecture on his Patreon, Ali A. Alumi mentioned um, a much earlier woman named Enheduanna um, from Mesopotamia, who's one of who who was a poet and priestess who wrote one of the earliest texts that survives. Mm -hmm. And um, in that text, it talks about her using a measuring cord to measure out the heavens, um, which he pointed out then would be connected with astronomy and astrology. Yes. Um, and Madonna is, is a poet. She's the author of the hymns of Inanna. And that we um, 
we know, and she was the daughter of King Sargon. So she, and she was a priestess of the city of Ur. So again, she existed at um, the highest of social levels, being head priestess and the daughter of a king. And there are um, tablets um, associating um, her with um, consulting tablets and measuring off the heavens. Um, around this time period, there was a dream of Gudea, who is another king of Mesopotamia. And in his uh, dream, he was told um, to build a temple and at the goddess Nanshi's shrine um, was another goddess, Nasiba, and that she was steadily studying a tablet of stars to build a temple in accordance with the stars. And so the notion of Enhudwana who um, holds measuring cords um, has, is connected with both astronomy because she measures off the heavens and surveying on earth so that the temples are built in accordance with the alignments of the stars and planets. And this takes us back to the uh, 2100 BCE in Mesopotamia. So we have this notion of women as astronomers who are connected with bringing down the heavens into earth in the shapes of the temples they build to honor the gods who are the planetary and celestial deities themselves. And then right. there's, yeah. And then there's a parallel to that with, with the Egyptian goddess Seshet, who um, is attested to from this early on the second dynasty. And she was involved with wisdom. She was a scribe, an astronomer, and she was the wife of Toth, who became the composite with the Greek god Hermes for Hermes and Trismegistus. So Seshit was um, the feminine counterpart of um, that archetype. And from the second dynasty, we go back to three th almost 3000 BC. She's associated with stretching the cord ritual. And the cord was like a piece of string that was tied in knots at certain increments so you could measure that and she also um, used that cord in order to align astronomical alignments with the building of temples so we have a between these two goddesses that were i want to say roughly contemporary within 500 years or so one in mesopotamia and one in egypt that women who are priestesses of goddesses or goddesses themselves were observers of the heavens and involved in bringing down the heavens into their earthly sacred um, buildings and structures. And the cord, the measuring cord is the key sort of emblem or symbol of that process. Got it, okay. And that, so that's really early. That's like 2000 BCE. Right. And then moving forward um, by like the 7th or 5th century BCE, I know um, there was a student of yours that did a paper on another 
perhaps notable figure that could have been relevant in terms of some of this mm-hmm. history as well, right? Right. Um, this is um, Nadia Anderson, uh, who I um, did my classic studies at the U- University of Oregon. She was one of my fellow classmates, and we've remained friends since that time, and she is taken um, all three of the Hellenistic astrology retreat intensives. And part of the certifications from that is writing a historical paper. And so that paper that Nadia wrote was on um, Aglonice or Aglonike. Um, It is spelled A-G-L-A-O-N-I-C-E. And if you break that down, aglo means bright or shining or beautiful. And the Nike is um, a variation of Nike, the goddess of victory. And so just like Heliodor is the gift of the sun, aglo Nike. Um, And here are um, images of her. And she was... known to bring down the moon, which is a code for knowledge of being able to predict eclipses. Um, The Greek historian Plutarch in the first century CE wrote about her. Plutarch was a historian and he was also a priest of Apollo at the Temple of Delphi, which was the great divination site of the ancient world. And he wrote about Aglonice from Thessaly, who was a skilled astronomer that knew about the um, timing and prediction of eclipses. Now, what is, um, there are many pieces of the story that are fascinating to me. And this idea that they were women, and Thessaly is in the north central part of Greece. It has long been known for its profusion of medicinal plants. And that the women of Thessaly were known as pharmakis, P-H-A-R-M-A-K-I-S is the Greek transliteration. From and that that's been translated as witches by later people, but the literal translation is um, healers or botanical medicine women, and we get the word pharmaceutical for that. So these were women who knew the medicinal properties and all the plants to be able to make medicines as well as poisons and their antidotes, the whole pharmacopoeia, so to speak. And um, knowledge of the phases of the moon was a critical piece in ancient medicine making for the timing of when to pick the plants, when to pick the roots, when to make the medicines, how long to make them sit. A lot of that was connected with lunar timing. And so that there is a tradition of the women of Thessaly of having some kind of intimate knowledge of the moon, and in particular with eclipses, that Aglonice um, was very 
her name comes down, Plutarch said, in many books like you've read about her. The um, knowledge of the woman of Thessaly being able to bring down the moon goes back at least into the fifth century BC. We don't know what Aglonice could have lived um, slightly earlier than Plutarch, who wrote about her, the first century, or she could have lived in the third century BC or even the fourth. But in the fifth century, the Greek writers, Aristophanes, Plato, um, Hippocrates, all spoke about the women who had, who, the women of Thessaly, who knew how to bring down the moon from heavens. And they associated that Aristophanes and one of his um, plays, who is a comedian, said, oh, if I could hire someone to do this, like the woman of Thessaly, I could like capture the moon and put it in a box and the new moon would never come and I wouldn't have to pay my debts on the first of the month. So everyone in the audience laughed because they had enough knowledge of what that entailed and also saw the sort of wicked humor in that um, line. But um, Plato, Hippocrates wrote that women who know how to do this are impious, um, who are using divine healing rather than physical healing. And he associated that with the women of Thessaly who use bring down the moon in order to affect healings by divine means. And Plato also said, women who do this, this is like subversive. It's going against the natural order of things. So on one hand, there was an awareness by classical writers as early as the fifth century that women in Thessaly were doing all kinds of things, knowing how to bring down the power of the moon or working with lunar and eclipse cycles, but they didn't like it. And it's part of the misogyny of men fearing women who have power that they may think is magical or they don't understand or they feel threatened by. But that's a sort of a, a feminist perspective, but shifting back to the astrological perspective, were those women doing astrology several centuries before Hellenistic astrology as we know it took shape in Egypt? And there's no evidence that they were casting charts. They were looking at planets and signs with rulerships. They were looking at houses or aspects or lots. But they did have, they were exhibiting this knowledge that the um, certain celestial events and the ability to predict when they would happen had relevance to either um, effects that would then happen in the terrestrial realm or using that time in order to influence events that could happen through the rituals that they did. And this is definitely a form of astrological-like thinking as well as astromagical thinking that was going on in Greece centuries before the kind of Hellenistic astrology that we take now as being the format um, was being done. And so Aglanisi, whose name was given to us by Plutarch, is one of our links to women doing astrology. And I think it's 
I hate to call it folk astrology, but certainly in the Middle Ages, when uh, astrology died down in the West because no one could read the text anymore, um, people were still using phases of the moon for planting and building and marrying. And so this idea of lunar cycles was a continuum that was often held by um, ordinary people, and especially with the moon's role in childbirthing, could have been particularly by women. Yeah, right. And and also, even just um, to the extent, if there are women that were familiar with the ability to predict eclipses astronomically, and the extent to which that was derived from the Mesopotamian tradition, because yeah. it was the Mesopotamians that had a long history of observational astronomy as well as mathematical astronomy, whereas the Greeks were relative latecomers to that. Mm -hmm. um, some of that knowledge probably, if it was passed on to Greek women, was probably um, coupled with or, or was packaged to some extent with some of the knowledge of Mesopotamian omen astrology as well. Right. And this is something that Nadia Anderson goes into some detail in her paper. And um, perhaps we'll be able to get a copy of that available from her. But there, uh, she um, did some research that showed in one of the letters to King Esser Hardin, who is an Assyrian um, king. And he was one of the kings who believed in astrology and it was from his library that we have the text he had but ziggurats were the their pyramid shaped buildings were astronomical observatories and he had people taking the celestial omens and every day running to his capital at Nineveh giving him advice based on the omens and in one of the letters that was sent it was about a potential enemy in um, north north of him in Syria. And there was a reference to, it was either the messengers or the people whom his messenger had spoken to. And it made the allusion to, yeah, and their women like are always like bringing down the moon from the heavens. And so in the seventh century BC in Mesopotamia, we still have this notion of women having the knowledge of eclipses and the um, omen qualities of it being potentially a dangerous time for kings through the prediction of those eclipses. Mm. Okay. Right. And it's, you know, to what extent was that knowledge transferred to Greece? It was eventually at what point and based on Nadia's work and my own research, that could be another whole conversation, but I think we can, um, we've said sufficient here. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, and then you mentioned briefly the Oracle at Delphi, and that's another tradition of women being involved in divination mm -hmm. um, as well. Right. And that was certainly not um, astrology. Mm -hmm. But it was more of a direct perception. And in the work of both Plato and Cicero, they spoke about um, two main branches of divination. One was direct, 
And that was when the mind of the diviner had a direct communication with the mind of the deity. And that was the kind, for the most part, that was the kind of divination that happened at Delphi. They, um, there are two Greek words used um, in connection with that of um, ecstasis, from which we get ecstasy, and enthusiasmos, from which we get our word enthusiasm. And first, the priestesses would go into a state of ecstasy, meaning to step outside of themselves, ek meaning out of, and stasis is standing. And then they would be filled with enthusiasma. And on is in, and thu is the root word for God. So they would be filled with the divine spirit. And from that, they would give their um, oracle, their response to the suppliant who would come to the temple to request that uh, spiritual guidance. The other branch um, was indirect divination. And that was through the observation of signs in nature and like augury and liver divination and the direction of smoke over ritual fire or part of that. And it was looking by looking through and the chickens that the Roman soldiers traveled with that they'd throw out feed in whatever directions the chickens went to eat, like and that's the direction they would go into battle for the next day. Um, but those were all secondary through signs of nature, where there was the belief that the deity who is giving the spiritual guidance put their answer in the entrails of an animal that was about to be sacrificed, or they put their direction, their guidance in the direction of the smoke that would flow from the ritual fire or so on. And astrology was a curious blend between the two, because on one hand, one is looking at the movements of the planets themselves so that there's an intermediary between the astrologer and the insight. But to the extent that the planets were believed, at least in the Mesopotamian period, to be um, the emanations of the deities themselves, then one could say that the astrologer, through communing with the planet, was receiving that direct communication. Hmm. And so astrology, being known as both an art and a science, carries both of those elements of working through that direct, the inspired voice, and the indirect, like knowing how to calculate the chart and what the symbols mean and how one puts that together. And there's rules about that. Right. Yeah. Right. But the oracles at Delphi were doing the direct communication. And it's interesting that Plutarch, who's a classical scholar, um, wrote all these essays and histories and biographies, himself was a priest of Apollo at the Temple of Delphi. And so he was involved in having access, or at least knowing about that tradition of the kind of divine knowledge that comes in a direct manner. Got it. Okay. So, and that's the direct manner of divination versus mm -hmm. like the artificial or provoked manner of divination, which astrology later would fall into more of the category of because 
it involves all of those um, the calculations of the planets, and it's a more more technical form of divination. Right. Yeah, technical. I would definitely use the word technical, techne, um, rather than provoked. Provoked is the seer is either asked for a question, ask a question. So you have a client that asks an astrologer a question, and then the astrologer gives the answer, and that's provoked. It's asked for. The unprovoked is spontaneous, where the astrologer, without being asked, has this vision of what some planetary alignment is going to portend, and then waxes on about that. Right. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So circling back around to Heliodora. Um, oh, yeah. There's lots so, more that can be said about her. Yeah. So let's locate her geographically and in terms of her time period so they found this tomb uh stone um one of the things about it is that it, it was acquired by a museum in 2011 and it was mm -hmm. previously owned by a private collector who got it at some point earlier in the 20th century probably from a collector or a dealer from cairo and um you can actually now see the tombstone it's it's housed at the university of right. missouri almost sorry it's um you can almost see it you can't actually see it right now <laughs> oh it's not on display right one of my um astrologer friends and eugene molly niffin her family lives in missouri and she went there recently for a visit and i told her like go to columbia go to this place and look at this image and when she called to make sure it was there they told her they were in the process of moving the building the moving the art ex exhibits so they had in that building to some other site so that they weren't available for viewing at this very moment okay so um lest anyone in that area suddenly gets in their car right after listening to this episode and hightails it off to see Heliodora. I'll call first and see when and where she'll be on display again. Okay, got it. Yeah, well, I hope once it is on display again, so we get yeah. some good pictures or some better pictures yeah. than the one that we have, which are okay, but they're a little pixelated. Um, but so let's talk about yeah. um, the geographical and the time frame. So we're talking about Egypt in the second or third century CE. So this is a period um, several hundred years after Alexander the Great conquered Egypt, um, and in, and then there were installed a series of Greek-speaking rulers that took over Egypt mm -hmm. for the next several hundred years, the Ptolemies, and then by the first century BCE, we get the Roman Empire takes over Egypt, famously when um, Anthony and Cleopatra lost the uh, battle against um, Octavian or Augustus, and that ended the Ptolemaic family line when Cleopatra and Anthony committed suicide. So then from that point forward, we have the Roman Empire that's in, that's in control of Egypt. Um, and there we have uh, a, we have the foundation of like Alexandria and the Library of Alexandria mm -hmm. and some of the things associated yeah. with it. And we also get um, Egypt becomes the birthplace essentially of 
uh, horoscopic astrology or what we sometimes call Hellenistic astrology, which is the system of astrology that uses the planets and the signs of the zodiac, the concept of aspects, and the concept of the 12 houses all together primarily in order to mm -hmm. interpret uh, birth charts. So that's part of the context of Egypt is Egypt became the, the home the home essentially of this type of natal astrology that we're all familiar with as you know roughly what we sometimes mm -hmm. call western western astrology and um around that time frame of the 2nd or 3rd century CE that that's roughly also the time frame of some of the most famous astrologers like Vedius Valens or Claudius Ptolemy um and different figures like that who are also living in Egypt probably right, in exactly. Alexandria Right. So that's what's fascinating that Heliodora was most likely living contemporary, not most likely, but was possibly living at the same time as Valens and Ptolemy. Right. And um, can you um, show that map? Did you have the map of where the town was, Terranuthis? Did I see you flash that as one of your images? Yeah, so here's one on Wikipedia. Um, it's kind of small, and I think if I click it, it'll yeah, not show it on the map, of course. Okay. Me... Okay. So... I, I was thinking of the map that was in the paper, but yeah. I can just talk about it. Um, no, here it is. With, with, okay. Yeah. So you see where uh, Terranuthis is on the left-hand side of the Nile Delta. And the article talks about how that was a major crossroads um, between coming from um, Cairo, or what it was known as Memphis as being the capital from the south, and from Alexandria in the north. And it was a critical junction that led out into the Wadi Natrum, which was the desert where an important um, mineral was found that was used both in the glass making and the textiles. So you have this as a important juncture of trade and traffic and where trade and traffic happen, there's also the transmission of ideas. It was also in this town that there was a temple of Hathor. And um, I think in previous episodes where Chris talked about um, the Temple of Hathor in Dendera in Egypt. That's where we have um, some of the most complete Egyptian zodiacs, both the round zodiac with the signs and the planets and their exaltations. But there are also at least a half a dozen other rectangular strips of zodiacs from that temple. Um, that display different astronomical phenomena that haven't been publicized as much. So the fact that this was an important center of exchange of ideas and commerce, and there was a Hathor temple there, um, places it in the midst of possible astrological vibrancy. And so this is part of the setting for Heliodora being there. Right. Um, I also noticed on the map that it's um, not very far geographically from another 
town that's recently mm-hmm. important called Athribus, yes. um, which is just right over there to the right of Terranuthis, where mm-hmm. Heliodora was from. And Athribus was, um, is a place where there've been some papers published recently where some demotic Egyptian right. birth charts have been discovered mm-hmm. Um, which contain lots and or contain the astrological lots or Arabic parts and other concepts that are common to Hellenistic astrology. So it's interesting just geographically in terms of other hotspots for astrology that have come mm-hmm. up recently in terms of archaeological discoveries. Right. I you know when I when I saw where that that was on the map, I had to um, smile remembering the line from Valens where he was searching for time lord methods that you know might work and he said and he like traveled all over egypt looking for esteemed teachers and went you know looked for teachers in the egyptian deserts and i thought that well that would have been like a natural route for him to have gone on from alexandria to terranuthis and then to connect with routes that went out into the desert and you know what if he had like met Heliodora they were at living at the same time and if he was seeking out teachers he may have been drawn to either her or whoever she learned astrology from in that area and I would love to see a, a movie a historical fiction book Netflix docu <laughs> right. series on the um, fictional meeting of Valens and Heliodora yeah, for I know, sure. I'm just being sort of frivolous here, but nevertheless, it is something that certainly was in the realm of possible encounters. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he went to Egypt. He was supposed to be from Antioch, and he traveled mm-hmm. to Egypt to like the home and the birthplace of astrology in many ways. And then he was looking for different teachers, and he tried out different people, but he wasn't super happy with some mm-hmm. of the techniques that he learned but then and he gave up for a period of time but then eventually he said that he like um he he was too drawn to you know the mystery of trying to unlock you know the key to astrology so he went searching again and he found a teacher that he says was a certain lover of learning who told yes. him who taught him this advanced um time lord technique yeah, yeah i found that i found that paragraph when i was looking for it and I was just kind of stunned um, that he said that um, he's going about looking and being frustrated. He said, until, and this is Smith's translation, until the wish for heavenly visitation brought about through a kind of providence, the transmission in a certain place through a certain lover of learning. And so it was almost as if uh, you have that line in um, Desolus of Thrales, who went to the Egyptian temple and requested a visitation, a vision, and then he was able to ask the priest to, about the teachings of Nechepso and Pedasiris. Sometimes this is Valens is making the same kind of illusion that the insights he had were through an encounter with a lover of learning and that that facilitated a visitation so it could have been someone visited him or it could have been more of a um 
sort of Gnostic. Um, what's what's the word? The direct knowledge visitations, the experience. Right, like a transmission of, of yeah. gnosis of like of knowing mm-hmm. yeah that, the, the direct communication the oracle where there's that direct communication from the mind of the divine to the mind of the diviner yeah i've been reading about that recently because mm-hmm. it seems like a lot of the early astrological texts from the tradition with nechepso and pedasirius and aslepius were written as like revelations mm-hmm. of this knowledge from like Agathos Daimon to Hermes, and then from Hermes to Asclepius, yeah. but that different ones may have framed it, like the Nechepso and Pedasirius text, part of it may have been framed as like a revelation that they received about the true nature of the cosmos from, mm-hmm. from some higher um, like spirit yeah. or being. Yes, and you know, that's not unlike the Quran that was received by direct revelation. And Tibetan Buddhism talks about all of these uh, mind termas of ancient teachings that are received through this direct revelation and the mind stream of the spiritual teacher. So it was um, definitely one of the forms of how the recipients of ancient spiritual knowledge claim that that knowledge came to them. To them. Right. Yeah. Firmicus last month and reading Ben's translation of Firmicus is constantly talking about the divine mind and talking about the, um, that hermetic and neo, uh, neoplatonist idea of like directly connecting with something that's above the physical world and how Mm -hmm. the, the divine mind is like above that. And is something that you want to like return to or that when a person dies their soul ascends through the planetary Mm -hmm. spheres and gives up certain qualities in order to return back to the source Mm -hmm. yeah um so with heliodora we're talking about um egypt in the second or third century and her um one of the things that the authors of the articles talk about is that she's displayed um with a mixture of greek right. and, and egyptian motifs in the illustration right yes right so as you know i found it fascinating that they said her hairstyle was egyptian mm-hmm. and that it looked like either she had a cap or a turban or either that the was braided really close to her scalp and then the hairstyle comes down behind your ears in a series of curls or of braids. Um, however, her dress was a Greek dress. So here we have a blend of, um, and it brings up, well, was she Egyptian? Was she Greek? The reality is was that there was a fusion of uh, greco-egyptian traditions happening at this time right Um, last month in the egyptian astrology episode mm -hmm. i did with ian moyer we talked about some of the um this like family of coffins uh this family that had these coffin lids that had zodiacs inscribed on them and how um you could see a few generations of this family lineage 
and different ones had Greek names or Egyptian names. And some there were some instances where one would have like a Greek father, but a an Egyptian mother. And so over the course of centuries, there's just these different blendings of um, these different cultures and these different family lines so that, you know, it's not necessarily one or the other, but sometimes it's like right. both. Both, and we see elements of that, at least how she's depicted in her um, funerary Stella. Right. Um, do you, so, um, <laughs> no, go on. Um, oh, this, you know, I wanted to continue that conversation a little bit of the Greek Egyptian. So uh, other elements mm -hmm. on the left is like mm -hmm. people usually some of the just like normal people I posted this last month thought it was a cat, but on the left, the animal is probably a, a jackal, which right. is connected with the Egyptian god Anubis, right? Right. And he's the god of the underworld, the conveyor of the souls of the dead. Hmm. And so he's very much a funerary symbol. And then the, you know, the authors of the article said she's holding a cup. If it was like from a Greek representation, it would be receiving a drink. But if it was an Egyptian um, symbol, it would be offering a libation. And mm -hmm. so is she offering a libation to Anubis of sometimes like libations to put into the ground during rituals or burials as offerings to the gods of the underworld um, to be able to receive the dead. So again, there's that ambiguity happening in her imagery. But then you have, you know, the inscription. And why don't you go through the inscription a little bit? Okay. Well, and then the last thing okay. which in terms of the images was the there's like a banquet below her. Mm -hmm that has like some either some flowers or some wheat. Um, there's like a, a pot or a cup that might be on like a tripod and different stuff like that that's kind of inscribed right below mm -hmm. her work. And, and a lot of these are very common motifs right. for this type of like tombstone. Right, and that's to do with the, you know, you always, after the funerals, you invite people over to eat. Um, there's always and there's the food of the dead being offered at burials as well in traditional societies. So the food is a, and the banquet table is an intricate part of funerary rituals in many different cultures. Okay. And then the very last thing is just, especially for like the audio listeners, there's two like Greek sort of style columns on either side of her. And then at the top, the sort of pointed or triangular top of a of a building above her. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's get into the inscription more. So one of the things in terms of the of the inscription is it says that she was 52 years old or about 52 years old when she died. Um, but one of the things that makes clear is is one one of the things the authors of the paper emphasize is that it's very it's not super common for somebody to have their profession even listed next to their name, man or woman. Um, it's especially uncommon to see astrologer listed, especially for a woman. But then one of the things they gave some numbers for was that it was also incredibly rare for her to be noted as being um, 
not married for an unmarried woman at the age of like 52 years old. And they speculated that this may have been connected with her choice of profession um, in that they gave some numbers and it was something like 93 or 90%, 96% of women by the late 20s or early 30s were all married mm -hmm. so that Heliodora would have fallen into a very small percentage of women that were not married, mm -hmm. um, which is in and of itself really notable here. Right. I know that at least in early medieval times, if for some men who wanted to become philosophers or scholars um, like uh, Abelard um, and the learning was under the auspices of the church, they had to take vows of chastity. They couldn't get married. Mm -hmm. And certainly if one was um, a priestess and some of those words that were used are beyond reproach and chaste were words that may have been used for the Vestal Virgins in Rome who tended the sacred flame and were unmarried. And again, chastity was part of um, becoming initiated into a spiritual vocation. Um, and that often it was the temples that were places of le where learning was available to women if they didn't come from upper-class families who had a value on that. So in looking at some of those um, inscriptions to her, I wondered if being unmarried, being chaste, being beyond reproach were indications that she may have been um, a temple priestess of some sort. But our paper said it was impossible that she learned astrology in a temple. And I'm assuming they meant an Egyptian temple. And then, yeah. right, and that got me to wondering, well, maybe it was because she was Greek and the other name Philadelphos of brother loving was a name that had been used by the all the Ptolemaic kings and queens is one of their names and established her lineage as part of the Macedonian ruling family. And again, I don't know if that's the case at all, but I was trying to understand what, why many of the epithets given to her of chaste and unmarried had to do with priestess qualities. And um, at the same time, there was, it was clear that, she, as I said, her education was not, um, in astrology was not through Egyptian temples. Yeah, I mean, I think that she, you know, if she wanted to pursue a profession as an astrologer, then that might have been a choice of hers that she had to make that you know, if she had gotten married, she would have been expected to do all these other things like run a household or have children or different things mm -hmm. like that. Whereas um, I think one of the implications in the paper that the researchers were headed was was that she remained unmarried and, and um, all those other things in order to pursue her specific career right. as, as an astrologer. Right. 
But in order to do that, A, she would have had to have the permission of her family because many women did not have the choice of whether or not they got married, that that was an expectation, a cultural expectation. Their father's like, hey, we're not going to support you any longer. You've got to go get married. Um, so she needed the permission of her family not to marry, and she needed the ongoing financial support of the family to continue being involved in the profession. Because right. otherwise, she would have um, it would, would have been her husband's job to support her financially, and one could wonder was she self-supporting as an astrologer receiving clients? Well, that's a fascinating possibility. I don't know enough about the social customs to explore if that was in the realm of what was feasible at that time. Yeah, well, I mean, the parallel really close possible parallel here is Hypatia, who um, in also in Alexandria, Egypt, mm -hmm. a little bit later, she was in the late um, fourth or early fifth century. Yeah. She died around, she died in the year 415 CE. Um, you know, she was the daughter of the famous, or not famous, but somewhat prominent um, astronomer Theon of Alexandria, mm -hmm. who wrote commentaries on the astronomical works of Ptolemy um his his um almagest as well as his handy tables um some of which he wrote explicitly because he said there were astrologers that wanted to understand better how to use those tables mm -hmm. and so he was writing some of these commentaries to help facilitate that um so hypatia um learned and became really good at mathematics and astronomy and potentially philosophy um, partially through being able to learn that with her father in Alexandria and then they may have collaborated together one of the manuscripts mm -hmm. says that she collaborated with him on one of his commentaries on Ptolemy mm -hmm. so sometimes women in the ancient world would have that connection even though they weren't usually afforded the same education as men um, there were some contexts especially through a father or other family exactly. connections where they could have learned that stuff. Yes. Um, but Hypatia is also a good parallel also because she also has similar connections in terms of like being unmarried and having some of similar um, qualities potentially of, of mm -hmm. potentially being like a virgin or other things like that, right. um, being associated with her and being independent in that way. Because I think one of the mm -hmm. things not being married, you know, allowed somebody was um, having independence and having self-determination right having a life that was not centered around bearing and raising children and feeding the family which took up all of women's time right yeah so and it also reminds me of how like even valens in the second century and some of the hermetic material really talks about like he talks about how he didn't focus on um, you know, gambling and all these other things that he viewed as like materialistic distractions. And instead, he focused on his single minded pursuit of astrology and the study of the stars mm -hmm. and the planets. And he really um, makes this like a central, par central part of his right. ethical, almost like qualifications as an astrologer. And I wonder mm -hmm. if somebody like Heliodora living in Egypt in the same time period would have had similar 
you know, philosophical or ethical mm-hmm. sort of like feelings in terms yeah. of her, dedica- her dedication yeah. to the subject. Right. No, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right with that. And that she did obviously dedicate her life to that. And that chances are what astrology, how she learned astrology, most certainly came through family connection. of a father, brother, um, some relative, and having a family that valued women's education and that allowed her to pursue the life that she did. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's what was interesting is one of yeah. the epithets she was given was um, sibling loving or brother loving. Mm-hmm. And so on other um funeral in other tombs there's similar epithets for people that are like husband loving right. or that they were child loving that they loved their children um but for her she had some kind of connection with her siblings mm-hmm. and that perhaps you know it potentially could have been her siblings burying her since she was only 52 years old um so it's maybe it could have been through them that she had either the financial support or that she had the support of her family to somehow pursue this career as an astrologer yeah yeah I think that would have been essential that she had familial support in both learning and pursuing the career all right so So. but nevertheless it's she must have been very esteemed and respected and part of a notable family for the word mathematica to be inscribed on her tombstone and recognized as such, because as you started off saying, professions weren't usually part of the inscriptions on one's tomb. So it was special that it was, and she must have had a certain amount of status or power or connections to have that even happen in the first place. So you wonder what her reputation was in her lifetime in order to merit that on her tombstone. Yeah, I mean, that she would have been an astrologer seeing clients. She would have been reading people's birth charts in this little small to mid-sized town in Egypt in like the second Mm -hmm. or third century. And that also means she would have had access to um, not just, you know, verbal teachings potentially from whoever her teacher was, Mm -hmm. but also from texts. Like she would have had some of the texts that were common in that time period, which would have been some of the earlier texts, like maybe the texts attributed to Hermes or Asclepius or Nechapso and Pedasiris. By the second or third century, Mm -hmm. she could have even also had access to like the the poem of Dorotheus that taught natal astrology Mm -hmm. and electional astrology. Um, even, you know, if she was a little bit later, she could have even had access to like the texts of Valens or the texts of Ptolemy. Right. Or because it was such a juncture of trade and commerce of people who had been attending Valens classes in Alexandria, like coming through and talking about this lecture that they heard last week and being able to partake of a network of, um, the popularity of astrology at that time and the flow of communication. And she was in a place where there would have been a lot of flow 
of ideas and peoples passing through. Yeah, and so she would have um, had those texts, she would have had like the delineation texts like that tell you how to interpret certain combinations because there's just like so many combinations that everybody needs those initial sort of guidebooks, at least at one point earlier in their studies to learn what different aspects or placements mean. Um, and then she also probably would have done charts. She would have done the calculations for charts, maybe on a piece of papyrus, but um, archaeologists have found these different astrological boards that they think that astrologers probably used in order to do actual consultations. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm hoping to do an episode on this pretty soon, but here's a image for the video viewers of one of the more famous ones that's like a wooden board that almost looks like a chess board and then on the inside it has the 12 signs of the zodiac and on the outside it has the decans and the bounds or terms and astrologers would have used a stone for each of the planets in order to recreate the person's birth chart on the table for the consultation mm -hmm. so that's something definitely she would have right. used Right, so there are a lot of tools and resources available to her at that time. Right. And then going back to, you mentioned the family connections, and it makes me think of somebody who also potentially would have been her contemporary, yeah. um, who was Paul of Alexandria or Paulus Alexandrinus, who lived around the year 378 CE in Egypt, um, probably in Alexandria, and he actually wrote his textbook, his introduction to astrology to his son. And in his text, he includes uh, his son's birth chart, essentially. Right. So you're speaking to the tradition of parents passing on their professions to their children. Yeah, I thought that might be a good segue to talk about like family lineages. Yeah. Right. So you want to get into Julia Babala yet? Or you're making yeah. your you're making your way to somewhere else. No, that's a good uh, so let's talk about um Thraslis and Belbilis and that whole family line of astrologers, right. which is one of the most prominent and long-running family lines of astrologers that we know about that stretches mm -hmm. from the first century BCE all the way through the second century CE. Right. And so when um, Chris and I first spoke about doing this presentation, we, we started, I started, we both started doing a little search for clues as to other women astrologers, if they existed or women connected with astrology. And, um, we came across the name of Julia Babala, who lived um, probably at the same time of Heliodora. And Julia Babala was the great granddaughter of Thrasylus, who was Emperor Tiberius's astrologer. And this story, uh, tracing this lineage, is part of my you know personal story of like tramping around through Greece looking at different sites with the guidebook and it was in the early 2000s that um, I was wandering about Athens with Scott Silverman and Carmen Miller 
and part of our itinerary that day was going to this monument called the Philippopolis Monument that was on top of the Hill of the Muses because it, it had a great view and one could see the Acropolis in the distance that was on another hill across the way. And so we found the path and wound our way up there. And then as we're looking at the monument, I looked at the base and I saw that the person whom the monument was dedicated to was both a prince of um, the area of Comagene and that it was dedicated by his sister, Julia Babala. And that just started ringing off bells in my head because I knew that Comagene was an area in Southern Turkey that was um, ruled over by Hellenistic kings in the aftermath of Alexander the Great. And that family had strong astrological interests in the earliest Greek horoscope, which was the line of Comagene that was the coronation chart of the first king Antiochus um, came from there. And so- Here's an image of it. Right. So that part was interesting. And then- Julia, so, yeah. expand on the lion yes. horoscope part? Yes. So here's an image of oh, yeah. it for those watching the video version. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Why don't you um, talk about the conjunction of the planets in Leo? So it's just there's this um, relief, this stone monument that was found in modern-day Turkey um, from this line of kings of Comagene, and one of the early ones, it has um, a depiction of a lion, of which is Leo, with stars in it, and the moon on its chest, and then it has three stars above it that are written in Greek. It writes out the names of those stars, which you can see them just at the top, and um, researchers have been able to, the, the dates are kind of debated, but basically date it to sometime in the first century BCE, maybe as early as 100 BCE or maybe a few decades later, but mm -hmm. around that time period. And because it's written in Greek, this then becomes one of the earliest recorded um, sort of charts or astrological charts essentially mm -hmm. that depict an actual astrological alignment that occurred um, perhaps at the coronation of this specific king. Right. So, I knew that that place name had astrological connections and it um, the inscription indicated that the Roman citizen Julia Babala, who was his sister, had helped dedicate and build this monument to her brother. And that triggered off the name of Babalus, who is a famous court astrologer in Rome. So that sent me researching and discovering her lineage. And many of your listeners may have come across the name of Thrasyllus before as being um, one of the um, very early Hellenistic astrologer who was the friend and astrologer to Emperor Tiberius and guided him through the entirety of Tiberius's rule as a Roman emperor. And at a certain point, 
and Thrasyllus came from Egypt. Um, he was a, a scholar there in a scholarly work. He wrote the whole compilation and arrangement of the, all of Plato's books that is still used today. So he was a heavyweight in his own right. And at a certain point, while Tiberius was emperor, they gave Thrasyllus a bride who was a princess, a royal princess of Comagene, whose family had astrological interests. And Chris had just showed you the coronation piece of the first Antiochus king. So here we have the emergence of the court astrologer to Tiberius, the royal family of Comagene. And their son was Babylus. Babylus was trained in astrology by his father Thrasyllus. Which, hold on, just by the way, is kind of just like crazy that um, Thrasyllus is the astrologer to Tiberius. He becomes the astrologer to the second Roman emperor, basically. Tiberius was the second Roman right. emperor after the transition of the Roman Republic to the imperial period. And then that once Tiberius became um, emperor, that he arranged this marriage for Thrasyllus to like a princess from this major royal line from modern day Turkey, and that it was from an astrological family mm -hmm. or a family that has documented astrological right. interests. So it's like the merging of two astrological family lines mm -hmm. um, in Thrasyllus, who is one of the highest ranking astrologers in history, um, right in the at the beginning of the first century CE. Like there's just narratively and historically right. something incredibly interesting about that. Right. It's it's fa it's fascinating that for my astrologer, I'm going to get you a royal princess whose family is aligned with your interests. Right. Right. And and that and, they would then start a family uh, line of astrologers. Right. right. And Thrasyllus. Um, also was friends with Augustus and would often be invited to Augustus's dinner parties where he would converse with the guests. So he was, yeah, which, in the highest ech echelons. Which means what's funny about that also is yeah. he may, he probably would have known Manilius, who's writing exactly. his astrological text right. either towards the end of Augustus's reign or the beginning of Tiberius's. Right. So it's like Thrasyllus and Manilius are like contemporaries in mm -hmm. the same circles of power in Rome. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. So, so they have a son, ba Babylus, who then on Tiberius's, uh, uh, Thrasyllus died a year before Tiberius did. And then um, Claudius became the next emperor and Babylus became court emperor to Claudius, court astrologer to, to Babylus. And then there's a gap where, oh, and also to, to Nero as well. But there was a gap, right? I remember it's been Caligula that was the gap in there. And Babylus gets sent to Egypt, where in Egypt he becomes the head of the library of Alexandria. And he also becomes prefect of Egypt, which is like being the governor of the whole Roman province of Egypt. So here you have the son of an astrologer himself holding um, an extremely high both 
academic title is head librarian and political title is governor. When um, this space, and then Babylus mar marries a woman in Egypt. They have a daughter, Claudia, who is then married to another prince of Comagene. So Babylus's child likewise receives a royal marriage from an astrological family. And from them come Julia Babila, who we'll get to soon, and Philopapus, whose monument we went to visit. And before I totally get to Julia, it was this idea that the great-grandson of Thrasyllus, the grandson of Babylus, has a monument on a hill in Athens that says the same height as the Acropolis is, and the emanations of this astrological family continue to waft over the city and the country. And very few people actually have traced down Philopapus's astrological connections, but they're there. Um, so, Babylus, yeah, pull up the monument. Actually, yeah, just to give people context, because, yeah. you know, there's a whole Wikipedia entry on it, and it has some of the images like first it yeah. shows that it's on top of this hill the hill of the muses um where the ancient seer museum was said to be buried who was a prophet in the seer so this monument is sitting upon the legendary seer okay and yeah. And then also, I know you wanted me to show the family tree yeah. from Frederick Kramer's book, Astrology and Roman Law yeah. and Politics. Yeah. So this shows Thrasyllus marries, um, we think that her name was Akka, princess mm -hmm. of Comagene, somewhere around, um, Kramer thinks around 2 AD or 2 CE. Then they have a child. Uh, which is Balbillus. Another great astrologer. Right. The famous astrologer Balbillus that serves a bunch of Roman emperors, becomes pre the governor of Egypt yeah. and the head, head of the Library of Alexandria. And then they have children. Um, they have the daughter Claudia. Mm -hmm. And she her first marriage is with another, uh, with uh, Julius Antiochus Epiphanes of Comagene. So she marries another prince, um, son of a king, from which Julia and her brother Philopapus are born. Got it. So, and then um, Philopapus is the one who is the that the monument is dedicated to, and mm -hmm. the in de the dedication it was by partially by the people of Athens, but also mm -hmm. by his sister Julia Balbilla, right? Who died somewhere after 130 CE. Right. Okay. okay. Right. So by the time um, Julia is born, um, she is being raised in Rome um, under the patronage of the Emperor Vespasian, for whom her grandfather Babylus is the court astrologer. Babylus was 
Vespasian's astrologer for the length of his reign. And so she, she was said to have received a superb education under Vespasian's patronage. Then, in short order, after Vespasian's death, um, there are uh, three emperors that all disappear in a year. And then we have the reign of Hadrian. And Hadrian was known for his astrological interests. And Julia becomes part of Hadrian's entourage. So why don't you say a few words about Hadrian before we bring the story of what Julia does to a close? Um, I mean, the only thing I have is just that Hadrian, he's one of the few emperors whose birth chart survives and it's preserved in the text of um it's from an astrologer named Antigonus of Nicaea, and it's preserved in the text of Hephaestus of Thebes. So it's one of the few emperors where we actually have their surviving birth chart. Um, what were the other things that you wanted to mention about? Well, Hadrian? he was an astrologer, and that he would do his solar return every year himself. Hmm. Um, so he is one of the emperors, not only the he may have had court astrologers, but he himself had learned the art of astrology and used it in understanding his reign year by year. Okay. Right. Right. So then um, Hadrian invites Julia to be part of his court. Perhaps she was a lady in waiting to his wife or his wife's companion, and she lived in the court and traveled with them and one of their trips was to Egypt and to Thebes and the Valley of the Kings where so many of the Egyptian pharaohs were buried and Thebes was a major spiritual center and you know, Julia's education um, led her to become a poet and she was asked to inscribe verses of her poetry into the statue of a great um, Egyptian pharaoh, Menmen, which is a colossal statue that exists in Egypt. And it was somewhere on his legs that she inscribed um, uh, three epigrams, three verses, and yeah, right down in here. And the um, final verse was the um, lines and do you have uh, that that you can show the final lines acknowledging her um, parents uh, yeah keep, she, keep, go, keep going down she mentions them twice oh. so she says yeah right she, says, she said go ahead um she says, but I do not believe that this statue of yours will perish. I saved your immortal spirit forever with my mind, for my parents were noble, and my grandfathers, the wise Balbilus and Antiochus the king. Um, and then later, they are again right. mentioned mm -hmm. in a third epigram, where she says, for pious were my parents and grandfathers, Balbilus the wise and King Antiochus. 
Balbillus, the father of my mother of royal blood, and King Antiochus, the father of my father. For from their line, I too draw my noble blood, and these verses are mine, pious Balbilla. Okay. So um, that is, in some ways, it's like it's stunning for a couple of reasons that she was able to immortalize um, the name of her. Um, astrologer grandfather Babylus into an enduring monument in Egypt that was connected to an Egyptian royal dynasty, especially because Babylus himself, like Thrasylus, um, came from Egypt. He was governor of Egypt. He was the head of the Alexandrian library. And she was able to record his name for posterity which in ancient times, there wasn't, there was a not widespread belief in reincarnation. The way that one achieved immortality was that one's name be remembered after one's death and that she was able to um, sort of enshrine for the ages. Um, but secondly, that in Rome itself, she was, um, had both noble blood and the blood of a whole lineage of the most elevated astrologers. And whether or not she herself was an astrologer, we don't know, but certainly she had been immersed in that kind of thinking and that kind of knowledge, and that she then became, in her own right, part of a royal court that shows the status to which a woman who both had astrological and royal lineage could achieve in the course of her lifetime. Yeah. Right. And and the royal court of a king, of an emperor right. who was also a practitioner right. or a fan of astrology. Right. So he was said, oh yeah, you're, you know, Brassless and Babylus's heir, of, you know, of course you should be part of my court. But right, and she was also a royal princess from the other side of her line. And this so, is in the year one thirty C.E. So this is about almost almost a hundred years after Thrasylus died in thirty six mm -hmm. C.E. So it would be like today you have like Rob Hand. If Rob Hand was like the astrologer to Obama, you know, ten years ago, mm -hmm. and then a hundred years from now, if like Rob Hand had a great granddaughter who was then the you know poet or then was connected to a president like a hundred years right. from now who was also into astrology right and she went to a huge statue and inscribed rob's name and switched, <laughs> right. like it wouldn't be forgotten <laughs> yeah 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 that's pretty cool yeah so we also see that she also could have been a contemporary with Heliodora. So we have like two examples of women connected with astrological knowledge and lineage who must have been living or functioning at a high status level in their respective worlds. And it also speaks to the status that astrology had at a certain period of time um, during the second century, second, third century. Right. 
Yeah. And, and it also really brings up and brings into focus um, the idea of family lineages of astrologers, mm -hmm. both in the Greco-Roman tradition, but also we have to remember back in the Mesopotamian tradition, a thousand years before that, where astrology is like really, really originating yeah. the earlier versions of astrology, um, we already know that there were these family lineages of astrologers and sky watchers, and that these astrologers would go out every night and observe the stars and record their positions um, over the courses of hundreds of years. Yeah. And then some of them became the astrologers to specific kings and would send their reports yes. to kings. And we know sometimes that these positions were passed on from generation to generation, mm -hmm. you know, usually from father to son. But I think it's it's impossible within that context of having like a family of astrologers that that some of that knowledge isn't also talked about in the household, and that some of the daughters would have also learned astrology and um, even practiced it to some extent within that context. Right. So, um, just quickly in the um, hymns of Enhudana going back to 2000 BC, inscribed on the community cuneiform tablets was that she consulted she measures off the heavens she looks at the stars and measures off the heavens so we have this notion of women astronomers going back to the earliest of the sumerian babylonian history mm -hmm. um and then do you want to say a few words about Baran? Is also being part of a lineage. Are we there um, yet? I mean, I think that's that's another. I mean, I did so much already on okay. that episode with Ali that I'll probably just link to it in the description below this episode, okay. and and people should search for the um, for Queen Queen Baron um, astrologer is the episode I did. But yeah, just that she was connected with again another family lineage of mm -hmm. really prominent astrologers in Baghdad in the eighth and ninth centuries. And um, and that she also there were legends of her practicing astrology and using it in, in different very interesting ways. Yeah. So family lineages, and then also one of the things I was thinking about recently is, um, you know, you and I both learned yesterday about um, the death of um, an astrologer, a woman that we both knew named Ellen Black, who was the um, one of the founders of Project Hindsight, and she was the wife of the translator Robert Schmidt, who's one of the major figures that helped to revive Hellenistic astrology in the 1990s and 2000s through the work of Project Hindsight and through their um, partnership with Robert Hand and Robert Zoller and a number of other scholars and astrologers that's led to you know both you and I writing our books eventually mm -hmm. on Hellenistic astrology right. and and the way that some of that's transformed the astrological community over the past 30 years so we were both sad to learn of Ellen's passing uh, this past Wednesday today's I meant to say is um, May 15th 2023 um, but also just you and I know because we were there that you know, Ellen was the one that originally was interested in astrology in the 1980s and got Schmidt interested in it and told mm -hmm. him that this is a subject that 
there was something there and it was worth looking into, even though his background up to that point was in <clears throat> ancient mathematics and philosophy and classics and things like that. Um, she was the one that got him into astrology. And then she was also the one that played a pivotal role in doing like the marketing for Project Hindsight and I'm sure innumerable other things that might not be recognized because she was sort of um it was part of her partnership with Schmidt or there were things that were done behind the scenes right. that people won't know about and I'm sure that's also a really common um theme when it comes to women and that notion of like you know women behind you know powerful men or what have you not having their contributions recognized right exactly so um and I, you know, and I'm glad we're saying this is this part, in this part of the episode. We know that Ellen did many things behind the scenes. One of them that I remember that she was very skilled in getting librarians all over the world to send her copies of manuscripts of the astrological texts, as well as critical editions that were very difficult to obtain so that Bob was able to translate, having the resources that he needed. And that was one of the things that is relatively unrecognized, but you know, we saw that happen and was an essential piece of uh, what Project Hindsight was eventually able to do. Right, and she was the one that would actually like, like photocopy some but, of those right. Mm -hmm. critical editions right. which then schmidt and hand and zoller would would yeah. translate from yes so that's also probably a major um theme just in terms of the history of astrology as well is that the the number of different women that played major roles whose names have been lost um but were nonetheless major contributing factors right. in the history of astrology right well yeah i mean there is Evidence that the discovery of Uranus was by Caroline Herschel, which is William Herschel's sister. Mm. Right. And there are books now on women astronomers where that is brought forth, but for the most part, that piece is glossed over. And so we see the continuity of that practice. Right. Um, yeah, and Hypatia was another one where it's like we don't fully know. We know or we think that she helped or contributed with her father to some of his, the commentaries that they did mm -hmm. or may have co-authored together, but you know, what role we can't really yeah. say. Um, and then eventually things by the modern period start to change eventually. And by the 20th century, you start getting, you know, some of the most prominent astrologers in the world are women and and that the astrological community is being led and shaped by women in in really significant ways yeah. in the 20, in the 20th century right it's um very interesting topic of how in the previous to the 20th century virtually all of the names of astrologers that we have are men. There are very few. We've like pulled forth the names of a couple of women here, but throughout the 
Arabic time period, the Middle Ages, the Renaissance into the early modern. We have men are the practitioners and the authors of texts. And then it's not until the 20th century where for various reasons, whether it was due to the gap in the transmission of the traditional approach or the reshaping of astrology into being more of a psychological and esoteric art that we see the entrance of women into astrology. Where now, if we look at the astrological conferences and our clients and who shows up on Zoom talks, most of the participants are women, and there are many women astrologers themselves, and the client base is filled with women, so that there has been a transition that's happened in the last 120 years of who are the astrologers, who are both the creators, the practitioners of astrology, and who are the recipients and clients and students of astrology. Right. Um, and I did an episode, episode 137 of the mm -hmm. Astrology Podcast. I did on um, Elsbeth Eberton. And it was titled Elsbeth oh, Eberton yeah. and the Rise of Women in Astrology with Jen Zart, mm -hmm. um, who had done a lot of work on Elsbeth Eberton, who was like the father of Reinhold Eberton and who was the major astrology astrologer in Germany in the early 20th century yeah. and is a good example of that shift and that trend mm -hmm. um which eventually by you know by the time of the 1960s you know in 1968 we get the publication of like Linda Goodman's Sun Signs book and that becomes one of the highest selling astrology books of all time which has just sold millions and millions right. of copies um so that's a big shift from before that, maybe the text of like, you know, Claudius Ptolemy being the highest selling astrology book of all time or, or what have you, yeah. um, as well as the, you know, publication of more advanced technical works by, you know, other people like Liz Green or you and your work on the asteroids and then subsequently Hellenistic astrology and different things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in, so in general, I don't know if we can say that with the um, increased opportunities for the education of women, and even back in 1830, there were no like free colleges for women. There was uh, someone in New York who instituted the first college for women. So it's only with the widespread education and literacy of Women is women is a body, and in the '60s, when many receiving the vote, and then having more professions open up for them, that we could see the talents of women having um, an environment that was encouraging and receptive for them to bring forth their knowledge and insights, and so I. I think there were many factors that allowed for the entrance of women into the field that didn't exist socially in earlier time periods. Right. And one thing I should say is also, while we know for sure that that's like the majority or that's the major emphasis of things 
Um, there's still a lot about history that we don't know, partially because there was this um, filtering me mechanism to some extent in terms mm -hmm. of the transmission of the texts that survived and made it through the medieval tradition, um, just because text had to be copied over by hand from scribes and only a small percentage of the texts in the ancient world that were written actually survived through to modern mm -hmm. times. Um, and I know um, new work is being done on this subject and new discoveries are being made. I know that Ali Alumi is working on some research about other notable women in the Arabic astrological tradition mm -hmm. and the Islamic tradition um, that were maybe not recognized very much until recently that he's going to be publishing. Wonderful. Um, and I also talked yeah. to um, on Twitter an astrologer from India um, and asked him, he when I made the post about chart calculation, he said, this is from Saruba Sharma, um, he said in Sanskrit texts too, a word is often used for astrologer is Ganaka, which means arithmetician. Um, and he says a, there's a very early example of this. Um, so he was noting that basically there's a parallel in the Indian tradition with using where the Greek mm -hmm. and Latin astrologers are using mathematica right. or mathematician, that you had something similar in the Sanskrit texts. Um, so when I asked him about the earliest reference to women practicing astrology in India, he said, the oldest reference I know of is Queen Chandra Devi, consort of King Paragupta, 467 through 473 CE, who was skilled in reading and writing horoscopes okay. according to 7th century Chinese okay. sources. But then he goes on to say that women in ancient India received education in all mm -hmm. traditional subjects, including Vedangas like Jyotisha or, or astrology. Yeah. So, you know, the situation may have been different in different cultures. And what we've tried to focus on for the most part here is just um, the references that we know of in the Greco-Roman or Greco-Egyptian tradition, um, especially while we have some of those allusions and other references that are a little uncertain, that Heliodora is like the first yeah. one that we know her name and we know that she was a professional astrologer. Right, right. And that in that way, it makes her unique, but it means it's also sort of like the tip of the iceberg in terms of a lot of other things that we just don't have documentation of. Right. Yeah, with ongoing archaeological discoveries that are happening that we expect that there'll be more and we hope that they will be uncovered we will get to see them yeah and that's right you know. right if there's one that means there's got to be more than one right yeah and that's yeah. a really important point that there have been a string of really striking archaeological discoveries yeah over the past few years that are starting to change our understanding of the mm -hmm. history of astrology, this discovery of Heliodora's yeah. to, um, tomb is one of them. But also last month, part of what made me notice this or, or find this um, article by Alexander Jones talking about Heliodora was that he published another article where a lost work, a lost text of Claudius Ptolemy had been rediscovered after they used x-rays in order to x-ray another manuscript where somebody had written over and erased over a work of Ptolemy's. And so they were able to reconstruct mm -hmm. a lost work of Ptolemy's based on this new technology. Right, right. Um, or elsewhere, there were um, excavations 
and they found horoscopes written in Demotic Egyptian just in 2021 mm -hmm. that contained new things and contained some of the earliest birth charts that survived, which, as I said earlier, some of them were charts cast for women. So there's new archaeological discoveries being made all the time, and there's still a lot of work to do, and there will probably be new discoveries in the future. Right. So we hope that some of our astrological community will move themselves into a studies and disciplines where they can be part of this process of uncovering discovery and um, bringing more of our tradition into light and focus. Yeah, and that's part of what you did is in the 19, you were an astrologer by training and by profession and practice, but in the 1990s, you went back to school and got a degree in classics and learned Greek and Latin so mm -hmm. that you could access some of this tradition and, and learn it and work with it. Exactly, and it was such an incredibly enriching experience that it took my astrology in a direction that it would never, ever have gone without that training and education I received in the languages and the history of the ancient time period. And in some ways, it was because I'd learned to read and translate ancient Greek that Robert Schmidt um, helped me create a course for Kepler students in the Hellenistic astrology. Right, and then you right, you became... and then from right from that, like all kinds of things emerge from those initial years where that was taught and the students and the work that has happened as a result of that dissemination. Yeah, and then that actually is really that brings things full circle because then yeah. you you became the first one of the first teachers to actually teach Hellenistic astrology from two thousand years ago from Heliodora's time period. Mm -hmm the very first people to teach right. that to students in right. an astrology school in modern times um, after over a thousand years or almost 2000 years yeah. from when that astrology first originated. Right. So, right. So that's part of like the lineage, whether it's blood lineage or not, I often see astrology as this like living chain of light mm -hmm. and each of us individually is gifted with being able to receive the light of astrology for a certain period of time during our life. And then we've received it from someone and then we pass it on to someone else. And that's how we have kept the um, tradition flowing. You know, the Jyotisha in India, they call astrology, you know, the science of light. And it is the life that's being passed forth through all of the various practitioners. So it's like a real gift to, you know, even have a small toehold in that ring. Yeah. yeah. That's beautiful. Um, yeah. yeah. And the passing on of that tradition that Heliodora yeah. was um, involved in. And I'm really glad now that we can recognize her. And even though we know so little about her, you know, we know enough now that she can take her place in the history yes. as, you know, one of the astrologers that was part of our tradition. Right. And that, you know, all of the contemporary women astrologers, when asked whether any ancient women astrologers can say 
with a degree, high degree of certainty. Yes, <laughs> we know the name Heliodora, gift of the sun. Right. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. All so, right. Yeah. So another one of the traditions that I hope to pass on now um, is the course I'm going to teach um, this summer through Astrology University and how to hand calculate a chart. Yes, that's really important. So mm -hmm. before that is lost and because that provides such an important um, piece of the tradition that had always been there, which is the, the ability to know what you're right. doing when you're calculating charts and what the astronomy is that it's based on. Yeah, so I, you know, I spent really the whole, since last fall, almost a year developing it um, so that it's complete and it's based on the math itself. And so simply having an ephemeris in the table of houses uh, in my style of going through it, you know, painstakingly step-by-step step with explanations and instructions and worksheets and so on of bringing the process from time, place, and date to the constructed chart and how to um, calculate all the exact degrees. Um, after, um, and in the process, what became... Part of my own new learning was integrating some of the um, astronomy of the great circles into each lesson. So when you're calculating the midheaven, it's like for years, like, oh yeah, the midheaven is where the local meridian intersects the ecliptic. Well, what exactly does that mean? Well, I could point to it on a diagram, but when I went out into the, the sky and looked up in the sky, it's like, well, what am I looking at? And so that started me off on, on trying to understand the conceptual framework. So when we get to the calculation of the midheaven, the calculation of the ascendant or declination, like what is it exactly that these numbers that you're you know, crunching, what do they represent actually in the physicality of the celestial sphere that surrounds us? So I'm... Um, I've done that. And that after I completed the course, um, Tony said to me, he said, well, could you do a bonus lesson on how to use the tables? And I said, okay, well, I need to like revise certain sections of it so that it becomes more amenable. So I unpacked a lot of what I did and restructured it. So then you can also learn how, use how to learn interpolation tables that shortcut some of the steps. But if you don't have the tables, I'm actually teaching you how to do it without the tables. And if you simply know how to add and subtract and multiply and divide, and if you can't do it longhand, if you just have a little hand calculator to do that, that you can generate the chart. And what's important is not just being able to generate the chart. What's important is preserving a lineage that can be passed on. So all of the things that we're saying about the lineage that gets passed on, knowing how to do the chart was the first and primary act of being an astrologer. And that has merit in some people knowing it and then being able to teach it to other people and how it is that that can be done with the most rudimentary of the resources.
Right. And that was part of being a, a mathematica. Right. Right. That's what doing the numbers, so to speak, entailed. So um, that course will start July 17th. Um, it'll be offered through Astrology University. And if you sign up on my um, mailing list through my website, then um, you'll get notified when reg registration for that opens. And your website is DemetraGeorge.com. Got it. Okay. okay. Um, and really quickly, you were you were originally um, in college. You're studying math to be a math teacher, weren't you? I was. Okay. And I, I got all the way uh, uh, through student teaching, and I had to take a few more humanity classes, um, one of which was philosophy of science. And then all of a sudden, like, I got to year five and I switched my major to philosophy because that happened. But right. um, I did have a math major and um, I tutored um, classical physics as a young college student. That's funny then how things come full circle. Full, full circle. Right. Um, all right. And then you're speaking and you're giving a workshop at the Northwest Astrology Conference I later am. this month, right? I am. It's just in two weeks now that Norwalk will happen. It will be a workshop um, on um, mitigations and on Hellenistic planetary condition. So well, I've realized a lot of people now knowing a little bit of Hellenistic astrology look at their chart and like, Go, oh my God, I got something that's like really terrible in my chart. And the classes on, there's so much of that assessment, so many factors involved, it's relative, but then there's also a whole list of other factors that mitigate what you may think is a difficult situation that you have with the planet that suppress it, prevent it, transform it into a source of good. And so laying out um, how to recognize those mitigating factors. And so I'll, the first part I'll be giving, um, laying out the principles. And then the second part, I will be taking um, examples from the audience. And so the audience members will be both those that are there in person and the conference is being offered virtually and we'll also be taking examples from the virtual attendees. And so there is time to, I think there may be still a few places left for full registration. For the workshops, you don't have to be registered for the main conference if you want to attend in person. And then if you can't get there in person and you wanna do it virtually, you can go to the NORWAC website. And it will be Friday morning, I think the 26th of May at, um, we just see my calendar. Yes, the 26th of May at 9 a.m. So, right. so people can find out more information about that yeah. at nor norwac.net. Um, they can go to your website, demetragorge.com. And if they sign up for your mailing list, then they'll get notified when that chart calculation course comes out next month, as well as um, when you sell the recording of the mitigations workshop yes. from, from Norwalk, 
um, after that conference is over. Right, right. And, and then I think later this year, you're also doing an asteroids workshop. I'm doing a three-day asteroid uh, retreat in Palm Springs the first weekend of December. And this will be, and I'm giving some asteroid lectures in the fall, um, one for the EA community and another one for the um, Astromagica community. And for the retreat, everyone will get their 23,000 asteroid list. And I will take the participants through the process of how to find the mythic and the name and place asteroids that are most significant in their chart, and then how to be able to um, research if they're mythological, um, what they mean and draw psychological and archetypal and practical meaning from that. So um, now that the huge push with Hellenistic, I'm on the other side of it, I'd like to do a little bit more with um, uh, the amazing mind-bending places that the asteroids can take us to. Nice. Okay. Yeah, and balancing things out and having a foot in both worlds, in the ancient and the modern worlds. Yeah, and so much of the mythic asteroids, like I'm still in the ancient world, I'm still working with the mythologies of ancient cultures and how those myths are totally relevant and speak to the dramas, the eternal dramas that people still go through. So even though I'm looking at, you know, new planetary bodies rather than the old seven visible, it still is connected to the um, ancient classical studies. Right. Awesome. Brilliant. All right. Well, that's exciting. Um, I'll put links to your website in the description below this okay. video or on the podcast website so people can go there for more information. Um, but otherwise, thanks for joining me today to talk about Heliodora. Yeah, yeah I'm thrilled that we were able to do this today and um, that we all now will know her name. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast, and we'll see you again next time. Okay. Bye. A special thanks to all the patrons that helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Mimi Stargazer, and Jean Marie Kaplan. If you appreciate the work I'm doing here on the podcast and you'd like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through our page on patreon.com. In exchange, you can get access to bonus content that's only available to patrons of the podcast, such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the monthly forecast episodes, our monthly auspicious elections podcast, or another exclusive podcast series called the Casual Astrology Podcast, or you can even get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, visit patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. If you're looking to get an astrological consultation, we have a list of recommended astrologers at theastrologypodcast.com slash consultations. The astrologers on the list are friends of the podcast that have been featured in different episodes over the years, and they have different specialties such as natal astrology, electional astrology, synastry, rectification, or horary astrology. You can get a 10% discount when you book a consultation with one of the astrologers on our list by using the promo code ASTROLOGYPODCAST. The astrology software that we use and recommend here on the podcast is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available for the PC at alabe.com. Use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount.
for Mac users, we recommend a software program called Astro Gold for Mac OS, which is from the creators of SolarFire for PC, and it includes both modern and traditional techniques. You can find out more information at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount. If you'd like to learn more about my approach to astrology, then I'd recommend checking out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, where I go over the history, philosophy, and techniques of ancient astrology, taking people from beginner up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. You can get a print copy of the book through Amazon or other online retailers, or there's an ebook version available through Google Books. If you're really looking to expand your studies of astrology, then I would recommend my Hellenistic Astrology course, which is an online course on ancient astrology where I take people through basic concepts up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. There's over 100 hours of video lectures as well as guided readings of ancient texts, and by the time you finish the course, you will have a strong foundation in how to read birth charts as well as make predictions. You can find out more information at courses.theastrologyschool.com. And finally, thanks to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which is a quarterly astrology magazine which you can read in print or online at mountainastrologer.com.